Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 322 Eco Dharma. In this Geeks of the Roundtable discussion, teachers David Loy and Lama Willa Miller join us to discuss how modern Buddhism intersects with ecological and activist concerns. This is part one of a two part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm joined today for a Geeks of the Roundtable discussion. And we've got a couple awesome geeks joining us today to speak about eco-dharma. Um, so I'm joined today by David Loy. David, good to have you on the show again. Thank you, Vince. Good to be back. Good to see you. And uh, also with Lama Willa Miller. And uh, this is the first time we've had you on Buddhist Geeks, and it's uh, great to be here with you. Great to be here with you, too. Thanks, Vincent. Yeah. So we're here today to discuss, uh, I think it's a really important topic, um, the relationship between uh, Buddhist practice and the ecological, uh, David, you call it the ecological crisis. I mean, and that's a, a kind of strong way of saying it, I think, but it, it's also a very important way of saying it because there's a lot of crazy stuff going on in our uh, in our world right now. Right. Well, I didn't think I'd get a plug so early, Vince, but uh, the uh, <laughs> uh, ecological emergency sometimes, that's the title of our, uh, our book that uh, John Stanley and I uh, put out a few years ago, A Buddhist Response to the Climate Emergency. Yeah. So, so this is something, David, that you've been writing about for quite a while, probably before it was cool. So, so, so it was one way to say it. Um, it's definitely uh, warm now, but um, you know, before it was warm, you were talking about this stuff. Um, and uh, you know, and, and David, we've had you on the show before, so I think some people know about your work. You're also a Zen teacher and philosopher and writer. You spend a lot of time um, writing about the kind of confluence of modernity and 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 Buddhist. Uh, That's thinking right. and practice, um, right. which this is a clearly important area. And then uh, Lama Willa, you, um, you, you know, you're the founder and director of the Natural uh, Dharma Fellowship um, and have an awesome retreat center out in the out in the woods called the uh, Wonderwell Refuge. Um, so, you know, you're a teacher and um, doing all kinds of interesting work there. And, and kind of one thing I wanted to highlight is that uh, you're organizing a conference there on this very topic, Eco Dharma. It's happening this summer kind of bringing together a bunch of people to talk about this this issue, yeah? That's right. Check it out at wonderwellrefuge.org. This is actually the second time we've held a conference of this sort. And this year, we're hosting this conference from uh, August 7th to 11th and uh, inviting quite a lineup of speakers. We're hoping to bring together climate scientists, activists, and Buddhist teachers and leaders in their communities to talk about a collective response to the climate emergency that um, takes into account uh, that climate change has ethical considerations and, and is an ethical issue. Yeah. So we'll be discussing uh, climate change from all perspectives. Yeah, that's cool. And, you know, that's a, an approach that really resonates with with us here at Buddhist Geeks, because you know it, it seems like the only way to really respond in some sense to these complex issues is to to get everyone at the table, you know, all the important voices, and and hear what they have to offer each other. 
you know, that's what where really I want to start off with this conversation because we're dealing with two kind of major areas. You know, we've got the ecological movement and the activist movement on one side, mm -hmm. and then we've got the Buddhist movement on the other, and meditators and you know people interested in their uh, you know kind of uh, consciousness experience and and the sense of identity and suffering and things like that. And in some ways, they seem like really really different areas, yeah, different scopes and different concerns, mm -hmm. and yet um, you know in this conversation, we're bringing them together. And that's kind of what I wanted to ask you guys, you know, what, what do each of these areas have to offer each other? Um, in my experience, every perspective is limited. Every perspective has like certain things that it sees and certain things that it's blind to. Mm -hmm. um, so it, assuming that's the case, you know, what does Buddhism as a practice and as a tradition, hopefully as a living tradition, have to offer um, the sort of ecological movement and some of the kind of very troubling, challenging next few decades that we have ahead of us with respect to climate change and um, all sorts of issues. And, you know, feel free, whoever wants to jump in and try to respond to that massive well, question first. Well, actually, be, before we get into that one, I'd, I'd like to back up a little bit and just, just mm. say a little bit about how I think it's kind of the natural fit uh, between what I see as the traditional what highest ideal of the Western tradition, focusing on social and social transformation, including I think finding ways to address the kind of ecological situation we're in now. I mean, I think there's a long history in the West of built on the realization that we can restructure our societies if we don't like the way that they're working and we can restructure our technologies and, and economies as well. And then that coming together with the Buddhist emphasis on on, on personal transformation, you know, um, yeah. the way Buddhism developed in Asia, um, it, it didn't focus on social transformation. It didn't have much to say about political, how we reorganize ourselves. That, that for the most part, wasn't an option for, for the people in Asia. But so Buddhism has done this wonderful job of sort of developing all these technologies or let's say practices techniques that can help us transform ourselves and likewise i think in the west we're very aware of um the possibilities of, of social transformation of activism that can enable that and so i see it as kind of a natural fit together where now that buddhism comes to the west it can sort of develop its its possibilities and likewise i think we can see pretty clearly at this particular time in history that we're not really going to get where we need to go, we're not going to experience the kind of transformations we need if we just think about transforming structures, transforming social, political ways of living together. We also need the personal, the individual. So the reason I wanted to back up, Vince, was I, I think that that's the kind of larger dialogue between Buddhism and modernity that I'm really inspired by mm. in general. And I see the ecological crisis as one of those aspects today that makes that conversation so urgent. Mm. Okay. You know, that, that I think we need the best of both traditions if we're really going to be able to address the ecological crisis in the way that it needs, something mm. like that. Mm. Mm. Great, great. Thank you. And uh, Willa, do you have any, have any thoughts on, I mean, obviously you do, on the kind of the way that Buddhist practice, because this is where you've really been grounded I don't know how many decades, but I'm sure it's been quite a few um, on, on the ecological side of the street. Yeah, I, well, I feel like one of the things that Buddhism has to offer um, this conversation 
is that, uh, you know, similar to what um, David was saying, we focus on inner, inner work and inner transformation. And so if we can say that if Buddhists have a specialty, you know, David, you were talking about um, the Western specialty being this idea that we can restructure, a confidence that we can restructure our societies. If Buddhism has a kind of confidence, it's about restructuring of the mind and the heart. So, um, And that kind of inner cultivation of strength and uh, qualities of being that can be very helpful for activists, uh, especially activists that are uh, engaged in such a huge and uh, in, a, in a way overwhelming and despairing sometimes mm-hmm. issue. Um, so having tools to work with that involve both working with that, we could say eco despair and transforming mm-hmm. it into um, joy and activity uh, is a specialty of Buddhism, what to do with suffering and how to transform it. And, and then also um, there are practices in Buddhism of, of cultivating compassion that I think could be very helpful for the activist community um, practices where we actively deepen our sense of love for sentient beings can be pretty adaptable to love for the environment and love for ecosystems and um, being able to turn that into a practice that's not just conceptual, but that is embodied and um, and, and joined with some spaciousness, I think could be very helpful uh, in conversation with, with activists, uh, actual on the ground work. Mm. I'm curious too, do, do either of you have any sense for how many, um, and I don't need like a specific number, but you know, roughly how many people that are in the activist work have some sort of relationship to their inner lives in that way where they actually have tools and practices I mean, you all have spent probably more time in those spaces than I have. And I'm just curious, is that is that becoming more common? Is it common? Or is this still something that a lot of people are waking up to? My sense is that it's 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 becoming a bit more common than it used to be. But we're starting from, from a pretty low level in the sense <laughs> that I I mean, my my sense and my experience is a fair number of activists are are don't find Buddhism very attractive because they find Buddhists often very self-preoccupied, you know, that often we're, we're, we're so preoccupied with our own peace of mind and, and some, a lot of the activists get very turned off by that. So I think there's, there's a bit of a challenge there that uh, to us Buddhists to, to show that that's not true or maybe to, to work so that it's no longer true in the future or something like that. Mm. Mm Yeah. Yeah. I've been surprised at how many activists I've met who have no contemplative practice and, and maybe even aren't necessarily drawn to that naturally because, you know, often activists look at the word activist, you know, in some ways we could say contemplatives are, are focused on, on being and, and uh, activists are focused on doing. And really both of those things are necessary uh, to live in a, sustainable, ethical, uh, beautiful world. We need action and we also need cultivation of states of being. But um, but anyway, I think that um, often how we are is just as powerful as what we do. 
Mm. So um, I've, I've recently been in a circle of women um, who are being sponsored by Clark University, uh, women in the humanities who are involved in a council discussion about uh, this climate crisis. And it's called the Council on the Uncertain Human Future is the name of it. And we're just sitting and, and really sitting with each other and discussing Four, four times this year, we're getting together for a couple of days for four, for four very intense all-day overnight sessions. And in that, this, in that circle, I've met some people who are uh, activists and, and climate scientists, and, and not all of them do have a contemplative practice. So I think, I think that it is new to some people, and, um, and I do hope it catches on, because I think there is, as David was saying, such a great potential there for contemplatives to be in conversation with activists in a way that could really yield uh, a very deep form of activism that's informed by uh, inner transformation and a change of heart. Mm. But you know, it also works the other way around is uh, uh, I've, I've been just as surprised um, uh, the, the indifference or, or lack of concern, or what can I say? When John Stanley and I, uh, edited this this book that I showed a moment ago. It came out a few months, maybe half a year before the Copenhagen meeting. We were quite surprised how, how little interest it generated. I mean, mm-hmm. my, my sense, frankly, and I've been sort of following and plugging this for several years now, uh, until the last year, I haven't sensed that the Buddhist community in the U.S. has been any more progressive on this matter than, than, than any other, and, and I would say less progressive than a number of Christian groups. And it's curious, only in the last year or so, a lot of Dharma teachers are now getting very uh, concerned. And so it, that seems to be happening on that level. But even when they go ahead and like if you have, if people often retreats on Buddhism and the ecological crisis, the number of to turn out tend to be quite small. Uh, you know, mainstream teachers who want to talk about it find out that a lot of their people just aren't really interested. And I guess I'm really concerned. I mean, I think it's beginning to change, but I'm concerned that, and here's one way to say it, that uh, I think a lot of us Buddhists have found our own way of resolving the ecological crisis. That is to say, when we think about what's happening and and really follow and get in touch with how serious it is, it it arouses a lot of anxiety. And I think we have our own way of dealing with that anxiety. We, We meditate and we let it go. And in a way, the crisis is gone for us insofar as we find that quiet equanimity within ourselves and and that so that we don't allow ourselves to be disturbed by by this by this phenomenon and and so i think you know buddhism still has the buddhist community still has quite a way to go on this i mean i think things are moving in a really positive direction but uh, it's it's taken a surprisingly long time i think mm-hmm. yeah yeah i think i think you're absolutely right on that and i i think that um, part of it has been, um, and I don't, I don't know all of the reasons, but I do think that there, there has been an issue in some communities simply with the fact that, you know, 2,500 years ago, there wasn't an environmental mm-hmm. crisis. And so like in these root texts, there's no talk about doing something about the environmental crisis. So we have to create our own discourse. We have to create it anew and oh. we have to join it with these deep, Buddhist ethics of, uh, like uh, the ethics of interdependence, um, we have a, such a great 
basis for creating this discourse, but it's it's really, really new. And I think right. many Buddhist practitioners are are still trying to get their, their heads around, this is a different t- world, a different time, and a, a different language, and different needs. Yeah. So, good. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I think what's encouraging, if I can just follow up on that, is that, uh, you know, I mean, Buddhist emphasis on impermanence and insubstantiality applies to Buddhism itself. And we see the way how every, every time Buddhism has spread to a new culture, it hasn't just imposed its traditions upon the culture, but it's engaged in a mutual interaction. Mm-hmm. So, for example, my own tradition, my own practice tradition, Zen, right? We know that, that that was something new that evolved out of the interaction between Mahayana Buddhism when it came to China and the native traditions, especially Taoism. And, so some, and, and now I think what we're seeing is the same phenomenon happening yet again. And, and I don't think there's any doubt that the, the, the confrontation with the modern world. It's not just the West anymore. You know, the, the confrontation with modernity is, is, is the greatest challenge, I think, that Buddhism has ever faced. And I think we can expect that Buddhism can be, and I think needs to be changed in that interaction in the same way that Buddhism has so much to offer the modern world. So it's a really, really exciting time to be a Buddhist, but it's also a time that requires... And, and openness to experimentation and transformation, which is going to be necessary if we are going to find ways to help address the sort of situation that we're in today. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, and I think we're we're really in a time when we now have evidence that the Earth is sentient. I mean, mm-hmm. only in the sense that everything that we do affects her. And so we've had this, this, this understanding in Buddhism of having compassion for all sentient beings. And I think this is an example of how we have to adapt. Uh, in the past, I think teachers have uh, interpreted this, and it's been interpreted in texts as meaning creatures, you know, the animals, the hell realm beings, and the so forth. Yes, creatures for sure, but also where creatures live. And and so we have to start inc- including the earth as a sentient being. When we say those prayers, when we open our hearts to compassion, and if we do that, then we can, I believe there's a possibility for revolution. How can we stand by when these sentient be- this sentient being, this sentient mm-hmm. earth is hurting? Mm-hmm. Just like we couldn't stand by if a sentient being were hurting. So it's not just individual species that we need to be concerned about as Buddhism, but of course, in, as Buddhists, but uh, whole ecosystems. I mean, ecosystems are alive and individual species are, are, are part of that. And, and I think this is a perfect example of what I was trying to t- touch on, how, you know, what, in the last couple decades, there's been a lot of work on what is sometimes called the new cosmology or the new story. And this really fits in very nicely, I think, into what Buddhism has to has to say. Uh, uh, and and so I think this is something that's going to be, uh, you know, sort of grafted, or this is going to be one of the stories that I think is going to have a lot of impact on the way we understand Buddhism, even as Buddhism can help us understand this this new cosmology, which emphasizes, among other things, that we are we are the way that the Earth becomes self-aware. You know, mm-hmm. it, it does that answer that old question about uh, you know when the Buddha woke up? If there's no self, who who woke up? I mean, mm-hmm. 
there's there, there's fascinating kinds of interaction going on here, which of all of which, of course, have uh, enormous uh, ecological implications. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so, Vincent, you were asking about how Buddhism could contribute to this conversation, um, sort of for, from this conversation with activists. And then another area that I was thinking about is that this is so tied into this climate crisis is so tied into our consumer habits mm-hmm. as nations and as communities. And if there's going to be any change, there has to be a change on the level of our consumerism and how we've framed even concepts like the economy. It's going to all be up for question if, if this is really going to change. So, so one thing that I've, thought about lately is Buddhism addresses in the Four Noble Truths this question of desire, um, greed, and need. It's a big part of Buddhist Mm -hmm. discourse, desire, greed, and need. Uh, Do we have to just feed desire, greed, and need, or are there other things that we can do with it? And I think that is another area where Buddhism could perhaps bring some something uh, of value to the discussion, talking about working with our inner states of need and, and, and the sense of the needy mind. So um, that's another area that I've thought about. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny because I, I was having a, a, a conversation with a friend late, uh, recently and he's in, the, he's in the business sector and he's, he's a young guy and getting ready to go to Silicon Alley in New York and start a big, you know, incubation program. And he's, you know, raising millions of dollars and, you know, really stepping in firmly into both consumer culture and technology culture and business culture. And he's aware of all of these issues. At the same time, you know, my, my challenger question that I posed to him was um, how, how in the world can you change those systems from the inside and how in the world can you change them from the outside? Both seem very difficult if you're, whether you're standing right in the middle of it and you're just buying the assumptions of it or you're stepping on the outside and you're sort of criticizing it, but you don't really quite understand how it works. Um, You know, it seems like, you know, when it comes to changing these really big systems, that's where, you know, that's where the rubber sort of hits the road. and, And that's where I start to wonder like, how is this actually done? Um, it, it, I mean, it's clearly not a single thing that we're working on. And I wonder if this is where the ecological movement, you know, which, which is focused more on systems uh, and changing things, like may have something to offer kind of the Buddhist side of, of the street. Is your friend a practitioner? He is. Yeah? Because, yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's a really important part of it in that, I mean, I think one of the things clearly Buddhism emphasizes is that we have to start with ourselves, right? So... Uh, we come to Buddhist. We come to Buddhist practice because there's some dukkha, some suffering there that uh, that impels it. And so, by you know, by by dealing with that, I think if we're really engaged in practice in a in a deep and transformative way, it's going to have important consequences for our own consumerism, right? So we're not going to be caught up in the game that you know we we have to measure ourselves against the other Silicon Valley's entrepreneurs and and get the same. Ten billion dollars that that they that they've gotten, so you know uh, there there's some sense of perspective on on what one is doing and why one is doing it. So there, there's that side to it, but then there's also the other side. I mean, I think is as far as I can see, 
there needs to be some serious restructuring of the way that corporations work. I mean, corporations can play something very, they can certainly serve a very valuable role here, but it's also tricky in the sense that the way they are legally written in most cases, they're rather limited, right? And I think New York and a few other states, including California, now have a new kind of corporate charter that actually allows them to emphasize social responsibility. Because until that, you could actually be sued. A CEO could be sued by his shareholders for not maximizing, uh, you know, profit, because that's what it's all about. You know, the corporation is owned by these stockholders, etc. So we need new types of of uh, ways of restructuring corporations. I think that's a very important part of it. And fortunately, corporations have a, an umbilical cord. It's called their charters, and and so I I think that that. Uh, certainly has to be part of the process. So, I mean, I think those are just two reflections. It's such no. a huge issue. I, I don't oh, want to yeah. pretend that I, but, but I think those are two important aspects of it. Maybe Willa wants to. Uh, well, you know, I, I feel like I'm still really, you know, much more than I do, David, about that side of things. And I'm still learning a lot um, about the broader systems. And I do think that is one way that a conversation between activists and Buddhists is so important. So David talked about the passivity he sees in many Buddhist communities and the lack of, of really taking this issue seriously, taking it to heart and, and taking personal responsibility for being active about it. You know, so he sees some, some evidence of that. I think the way for that to change for Buddhists is simply education. That it, part of it is that we, we just don't know that much yet mm -hmm. about climate change, the science of climate change, the truth of where we're headed, and, and these larger systems like corporate culture and how that feeds into this crisis. We don't know uh, as Buddhists much about that. I would say in the, in the Buddhist community, many of us, including myself, are still in a state of, of of some ignorance about those systems. And so one way that we can start to do something about our uh, moving and, and, and shaking more as Buddhist communities is education, educating. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. 
You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.